We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Architect Podcast, episode 133. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today, we bring on former guest Parker Van Valkenburg and Andy Dufton to talk about big data in archaeology. Let's get to it. Peter Van Valkenburg is an archaeologist whose research focuses on landscapes, politics, and environmental change in the early modern world, particularly in late pre-Hispanic and early colonial Peru. He received his PhD in 2012 from Harvard University and previously held positions at the University of Vermont as an assistant professor from 2013 to 15 and Washington University in St. Louis. Among other projects, he is currently the director of a large project that is an investigation of long-term human environmental interaction in Peru's Chachapoyos region. I'm saying that all wrong, and I'm not even attempting the name of the project he's the director of. Sorry, we'll have that in the show notes. <laughs> but they've got remotely sensed data sets and work with contemporary communities in the provinces of Luya, Chachapoyas and Bongara uh, and the Amazonas uh, in Peru. He's also the director of the GeoPacha, Geospatial Platform for Andean Culture, History and Archaeology. At Brown, he directs the Brown Digital Archaeology Laboratory, and we've got that linked in the show notes. And he teaches courses on geographic information systems, cartography, critical digital archaeology, the politics of space and landscape, historical anthropology, and the archaeology and anthropology of the Andean region. Now, Andrew Dufton is a lecturer in Roman archaeology and history at the University of Edinburgh. He received his PhD in archaeology from the Joukowsky Institute for Archaeology and the Ancient World at Brown University and previously held a position as a visiting assistant professor at NYU's Institute for the Study of the Ancient World. His research interrogates the long-term dynamics of urban change in North Africa from the Iron Age into late antiquity. This work highlights the diversity, haphazardness, and improvisation that best characterize urban life in both ancient and modern contexts. He has excavated and surveyed sites in the U.S., the U.K., and across the Mediterranean, including acting as a surveyor and geospatial data manager at the Imperial Villa and Medieval Monastery at Villa Magna, 2006-2010, at the Tunisian city of Utica, 2011 to present, and with Brown University at Petra, Jordan, 2012-2014. to I'll hand it off to myself to get started with the show. All right, welcome back to the Architect Podcast. Paul, how's it going? It's going okay. It's uh, we're recording on July fourteenth, I think. Right now, we're kind of settling into the rhythm of mm-hmm. summer and uh, enjoying getting outside and get some sun, and uh, you know, still doing the work at the school and all our summer projects. But it's uh, it's eased up a little bit for the time being. How have you been? Not bad, not bad. It's all it's all fun and games in New York as you guys pull out of the coronavirus. But the rest of the country, I think, is going right back into it. <laughs> so I'm over in uh, I'm over in Oregon right now as we're traveling around in our RV. We're actually not traveling, uh, just not. To alarm people, we're actually at my parents' house in Oregon. Uh, stayed here for a few weeks now, and yeah, they just went full mask policy, starting to roll back restaurants and things like that. So, luckily, we bring our kitchen and all our supplies with us everywhere we go now, so we don't have to worry about too much. I love isolating wherever I can, wherever I want to be. That makes social isolating a lot better. Is when you can just bring your home with you and go park next to the ocean for a little while. That's pretty nice. And podcast. I'm podcasting from here right now. It's amazing. Let's talk about data though 
Because that's way more interesting than RVs, isn't it? Big data. (laughs) For everybody but you, probably. (laughs) That's right. That's right. We just lost our entire audience. No. So let's talk about that. So we've got one of our guests today is uh, Parker Van Valkenberg, and he was on another podcast, which we'll we'll link to in the show notes. But Parker, I think you guys were on probably a year ago at this point. I can't even remember when uh, to talk about some of your research. And then then we're also bringing on Andy Dufton, who uh, is working together. Together with Parker, and so, but first, before we get any farther, Parker and Andy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, and we're spread all over the country too. I know Parker's over on the East Coast. I think I heard him mentioning that. And Andy's over in Scotland, and I'm on the West Coast. Uh, and Paul's also on the East Coast, so this call should go smoothly. Nothing <laughs> could possibly go wrong. <laughs> Nothing could possibly go wrong. So we're going to talk to you about a couple of different things here. But uh, one of the things that we were given as a piece of information about you guys was this uh, what we're calling this JFA supplement 45. Why don't we start by talking about that? Tell us what JFA 45 is. What you guys did for it and we'll get into it. Yeah, sure. This is a an open sourced special issue of the Journal of Field Archaeology, uh, which, uh, you know, incredibly thankful to Christina Luke, the editor there, who made it possible for us to do this open sourced. Uh, and uh, it's based on uh, an SAA session that Andy and I co-organized at uh, the last in-person SAAs last year. I guess we didn't really have them this year, so it doesn't count. <laughs> It's the last day uh, ever, yeah. <laughs> yes. Last day ever, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's start, the idea for it started uh, really actually out of some conversations that Andy and I had at Brown University that were right on the back of a, of a previous session he had organized at the Computer Applications and Archaeology session. So I, I'll, I'll pass the baton to Andy to let you know kind of, kind of how that came together. Yes. So there was a session organized in 2017, I guess, at the, the Computer Applications and Archaeology in Atlanta with my colleague and old co-worker when I used to work in London, Jess Ogden, about decolonizing digital archaeology. And so it was a series of speakers sort of talking about the I guess the ethical implications of various aspects of digital archaeology and how we might tweak them or sort of change our practice to understand the ways that digital archaeology is is recreating some of the colonial paradigms that we wouldn't necessarily accept in field archaeology. Um, And yet, nonetheless, we're sort of accepting unquestioned in some cases in digital archaeological stuff. And there was a lot of dialogue there specifically about remote sensing information. And and there was some sort of some mild pushback on Twitter about whether we should even be having these conversations at all. And this sort of led to Parker and I having this this discussion in person at Brown about how we can sort of continue this dialogue because it's the thing that we felt was super, super essential, I guess, for archaeologists adopting these technologies. Because you mentioned the phrase digital archaeology, and Paul and I talked about this uh, on another show recently about the definition of digital archaeology, because I'm in CRM archaeology, and to be honest, to a lot of CRM archaeologists here in the United States, digital archaeology means using a tablet to record an archaeology site, right? Like <laughs> taking your paper and turning it into forms. But how do you? How are you guys defining digital archaeology in this sense? Because I have a feeling it's a little different. Well, I think you know one way that that I think about it is that all archaeology is digital archaeology to one extent or another, um, and has been yes. for quite some mm-hmm. time. Uh, we all use digital <laughs> tools. And if we don't pay attention to what the digital tools do to our practice, that doesn't mean we're not digital archaeologists. This means that we're not being particularly introspective about what the tools are doing. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I've always liked about your podcast and about uh, the sort of growing conversations about 
digital archaeology is it's an attempt it's an attempt to to do what we've always done, which is to critically examine our own methods. I, I, I tend to use the term critical digital archaeology, which I know is something that gets used in a number of different circles as being sort of self-consciously self self-critical uh, digital practice uh, that that looks at questions about mediation. Okay. I love that. And I love that you said that all archaeology is digital. I, my God, we've been saying that for a couple of years now, haven't we, Paul? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, and by extension, that all archaeologists become digital archaeologists. There's this sort of feeling that it used right. to be some sort of specialism. Um, when I did my master's back in 2004, 2005, it sort of felt like you were becoming a specialist in, in GIS or a specialist in digital archaeology, mm -hmm. whatever that means. And now it's sort of like everyone is expected to have some... Um, some ability in digital tools. No, that's absolutely true. Yeah, and that's the nice thing about doing uh, doing shows like this too, and bringing you guys on because we we like to highlight the possibilities out there and what people can do because I don't think they realize how important thinking about big data and the approach to big data for your project, it has to be a conversation that you have no matter what you're doing, because we are recording, even in the smallest sense of the word, sense of a, a site, you know, for example, we're recording an amazing amount of data with those sites. And the more tools that come down the line, the more we're recording and the more we need to think about, well, how are we going to not only just fundamentally store this data, you know, where is that going to happen? But then what are we going to do to it? And what, what can we do to it? Uh, and what can we do with it in the future? So uh, I think that's, that's one of the ways we're going to go in this podcast right now, for sure. So there's, there's one thing in the, in the JFA uh, uh, collection that we put together. There are a couple of archaeologists who I thought brought a healthy skepticism uh, with the, the concept of big data. The point was merely to say, as you did, Chris, that archaeologists have kind of mm -hmm. always dealt with with big data. We've always dealt with uh, challenging amounts of information and had to think about how we synthesize it, how we store it, and so on and so forth. So some people think, you know, archaeology has always, always already been big in one way or another. And that's one thing we have to reckon with is, is there anything really fundamentally new about the insights that are generated through data science approaches? Or are these just old problems wrapped up uh, to look new? Or are there um, you know, maybe some fundamentally new things that we can do now, now that we can ad address problems at scale that were difficult to, um, uh, to tackle when it wasn't possible to aggregate data at the level that we can now? Right. Well, I'm actually curious about that use of the word big data because, um, you know, in, in popular parlance that, you know, we use it in the news, we use it in talking about, um, about data science and so on. Uh, it, it's really dealing with vast, vast, you know, quantities of data scale that, that, that is world spanning millions, billions of data, of data points. And, in the introduction to the uh, to that JFA supplement, you use the term big data, but you kind of you, you use it in a slightly different way. You say that's not necessarily the the sheer scale, but uh, you, it more emphasizes those analytical approaches. Could you uh, expand on that for our listeners? I think if if you looked at someone who's actually a data scientist outside of archaeology and said, "Look at my big data. I have this this aerial imagery," I mean, they'd probably laugh, right? Because it. it it's big for archaeology, and it's still massive in terms of its its size, and in terms of the file storage, in terms of the questions we can be asking. But as you say, it's not really it's not really big data in the in the sense that a lot of external data scientists would necessarily conceive of big data things that are that are spanning the world, or they're talking about 
sort of millions and millions and millions of data points. So there is that sort of tension between archaeologists thinking, on the one hand, our data has always been big, but on the other hand, our data isn't isn't that big. And so I guess it's sort of thinking about the fact that whether or not we're we're hitting the threshold, whatever we want the definition of big data to be, whether whether a data scientist would think about whether we need these sort of parallel processing capabilities to deal with our data or not, these these types of things weren't really the point of of the session or also the JFA supplement that came out of the session. It was more about for for the context of archaeology, these are big data sets or data sets that require perhaps a change in the way that we're thinking or sort of a paradigmatic shift of of how we're thinking about landscapes particularly, but also how we're thinking about questions of ownership, questions of interaction between local communities. These types of questions are emerging. So sort of trying to to avoid spending all of our set uh, the entire session and also the entire supplement trying to define this sort of amorphous thing of big data and acknowledge that what's what's big for archaeology isn't necessarily huge, but it's still changing the way that we're thinking about our, our practices, the ways that we can understand or sort of see archaeological landscapes. Yeah, sure. I mean, I couldn't agree more. The sense that what, what big data, I mean, we, we did really want to sort of avoid the question of, of slapping um a label on on what was big and what was medium sized and and so on and so forth, and focus really on what people what are people actually doing with this stuff, and what are the some of, sort of new interpretive and ethical problems that are coming out of work that may not yet be fully taking advantage of what data science approaches can bring to archaeology, um, but are still pushing us in new directions. My sense is that uh, initiatives like TDAR and Open Context are uh, trying to to get us to the point where archaeologists can make make use of the kind of mo- most robust approaches of data science, but we're dealing with you know there's some basic problems that uh, of aggregation that we still deal with that you don't face say I don't know when you're you're dealing with databases of DNA um, where there's a kind of mo- built-in modularity to it. Everybody calls a, a certain molecule the same thing, but we may disagree about what a pot sure it is and. Therefore, we code it differently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's a problem in it itself for sure. Is is calling things different things. I we've had interviews with uh, you know Eric uh, Konza before too from Open Context about you know how they how they handle data as well. It's always a big issue. Um, one of the things you mentioned though in the article that I wanted to get at here, uh, and you were just just alluding to this, is what kinds of things we can do with the data. And one particular example I can think of here in uh, well, not here, but when I'm in Nevada working. Is an archaeological site consists of two artifacts or features or a combination of the two in 30 meter radius of each other. So keeping that in mind, if you have one flake, for example, one prehistoric uh, flake, a lithic, and it's just hanging out there, that's recorded as an isolate. And an isolate in and of itself doesn't really tell you a whole lot of information. But when you record an isolate every couple hundred meters over this, you know, 10,000 square miles, that might tell you a little bit more information about what's going on there. But what kinds of questions have you guys identified that can be answered from these big data approaches that you just really can't answer any other way? You know, something something similar to that. Is there anything you guys have identified? Because I know you mentioned that in um, the beginning of this article. And then maybe what problems are associated with that as well, but we can get to that later. Uh, uh, one approach or one one question that is close to home is the, the subject of a paper in this JFA-themed issue written by Steve Warnke, myself, and our colleague, Akita Saito. And uh, Steve and I both are interested in 
the forced resettlement of indigenous people in colonial Peru. Around 1572, this particular viceroy named Francisco de Toledo tried to move what we think was between 1.5 and 2 million native uh, Peruvians into planned towns called reducciones. Steve's work and my work have focused on examining what the kind of local consequences of this process were in a couple of different valleys in Peru, but we haven't really understood how this phenomenon took shape globally and what some of the major differences in, in regional articulations of the program were. And so what, what Steve did beginning um, really three or four years ago now is, is to, to begin to design two digital tools that would enable us to aggregate information about this phenomenon, the general resettlement of, of, uh, of native people in Peru, also known as the Reducción General. And it turns out that there's this census that was taken around the same time of the resettlement. It's partial, it's problematic, it's a colonial document, but there's a bunch of information in there about the names of specific planned towns, how many people lived in them, and so on and so forth. So Steve had his uh, research assistants painstakingly go through and locate as many of these towns as, as they could. And lo and behold, although, again, this is not a, a data set that somebody working in, in, in data science and industry would think is all that big, we had the locations of 800 towns. And then we said, you know, what would be really interesting is let's take a look at the relationship between these towns and where we know the existing Inca road system was located. And uh, the Peruvian government, through an initiative called the, the Proyecto Capacñan, has been trying to map the entirety of the Inca road system. So we threw that into our GIS. We threw in these points that represent the locations of these 800 plus uh, sites of forced resettlement and then compared the location of the points to the road to the, the location of uh, 800 plus randomly placed points. And sure enough, uh, there's a significant spatial association between the locations of these colonial planned towns and the Inca road system. Uh, and what we think that shows at scale is that the Inca road system was was really kind of the, the it was the circulatory system that also fed the Inca empire. When the Spanish moved into Peru, they they used existing infrastructure as really the the, the host that they colonized, and the the association. I mean, you could you could show this at the scale of an individual valley, but the pattern wouldn't be all that convincing. It's at the scale of the entire empire that it becomes a really salient uh, and interesting phenomenon. And it's those types of questions that have to do with um, these massive political machines like the Inca empire that I think these quote unquote big data approaches oftentimes uh, hold the most promise uh, for solving. Well, on that note, before we discuss the issues with big data and things that can go wrong, <laughs> or things we shouldn't maybe be, shouldn't be, we shouldn't be analyzing. I don't know. We'll talk about that. But let's take our first break and then come back on the other side and continue this discussion with Parker and Andy back in a second. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. 
Looking to expand your knowledge of x-rays and imaging in the archaeology field? Then check out an introduction to paleoradiography, a short online course offering professional training for archaeologists and affiliated disciplines. Created by archaeologist, radiographer, and lecturer James Elliott, the content of this course is based upon his research and teaching experience in higher education. It is approved by the Chartered Institute for Archaeologists as four hours of training. That's in the UK, for those of you that don't know. So don't miss out on this exciting opportunity for professional and personal development. For more information on pricing and course structure, visit paleoimaging.com. That's P-A-L-E-O imaging.com. And look for the link in the show notes to this episode. Hi, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 133. Today, we're talking with Parker Van Valkenburg and Andrew Dufton. We're discussing issues around big data, things that they were looking at closely in a recent JFA uh, Volume 45 Supplement 1 that came out earlier this year in 2020. We were discussing big data just before the break and uh, some of the benefits of it, some of the things you can do it. And I think, Andy, you had some things that you wanted to chime in about what some of the potential problems or pitfalls are with it. Yeah, I guess if we're thinking about the the possibilities that Parker are sort of hinting at that a lot of the contributions of the volume talk about this ability to ask questions at scales that we wouldn't otherwise really be able to to even fathom to think about asking questions of the entirety of the Inca Empire is sort of sort of crazy. However, there's sort of this downside. A lot of our contributors to the JFA supplemental sort of bring up this this question of as we're moving to larger and larger scales, are we becoming more and more detached from the communities where archaeological fieldwork is is traditionally taking place. And so when we sort of move towards, uh, we had a contribution that didn't end up publishing with us, but a contribution to the session from the Endangered Archaeology of the Middle East and North Africa project, um, which mm-hmm. is this massive project that's doing recording of heritage at risk across all of the Middle East and North Africa. And there's a sort of question of as, as we're doing these kind of top-down satellite level imagery recording, what are we losing? The, the concern that's raised by a number of people is that we're losing this idea of the the relationships with local community members. We're losing the understanding, sort of an embedded knowledge of what archaeological landscapes are like. These are things that, that aren't only possible to be represented from satellite imagery. They're represented through, through engagement with the landscape, through engagement with the people, um, one of the contributions in the in the supplemental by Allison Mickle tackles this this question specifically of proximity. Um, and as we sort of take these these wider macro scale views of what's going on, we're potentially losing that engagement with the proximity to the archaeological landscape, the proximity to the past. And so that's sort of a, a question that raises a number of questions of interpretation, but it also raises a number of questions of of ethics, because it sort of moves the archaeologists sort of towards this idea of surveillance and mapping of heritage sites, of creating these sort of gazetteers of sites over massive areas that we then use in our largely Western universities to analyze things, to publish things, to get jobs, to be promoted. And and as we go to this macro scale, are we sort of becoming more and more removed from the people that have a daily interaction with this heritage. And so it sort of raises these ethical questions of surveillance, of mapping of military satellite technology, of all of these types of things that we kind of wanted in the session, and we're pleased that the supplemental also addresses how these technologies are also sort of raising these problems or these questions that we need to be aware of if we're going to adopt them wholesale. Yeah, I like that that, uh, that that question, that line of questioning, which is definitely highlighted in the article and in the inter-article to the uh, supplement, it is not just concerned with the practical effects, which it certainly is, but also, as you said, the ethical 
implications of it. And, you know, we're at a point, I mean, certainly people have talked about ethics and archaeology for a while, but it feels to me uh, that we're at a point in our field right now that just like digital and archaeology really shouldn't be a separate thing, digital archaeology versus archaeology in general, ethics and archaeology is becoming more and more foregrounded and uh, and an acceptable part of the discussion. Why are we doing things? How are we doing things? How does that uh, benefit the local community or harm the local community? How does it affect our, our view of the world? And uh, since we're looking at primarily through these big data, we're looking at landscapes from this God's eye view, mm. this kind of air war view. Um, I like that you were explicitly bringing it back, you know, the discussion back down onto the ground. How does it work with local communities, with local understandings of the environment, and how does it benefit or harm them? Was there a particular example from the uh, from the supplement that you thought really highlighted that nicely? No, I mean, our, our main contribution that was talking about this sort of tension was mm -hmm. the Endangered Archaeology pro uh, Project, but then they were unable because it's a massive project multiple right, right. teams across different universities to contribute to the supplemental they were they were at the saa session but didn't really submit uh, i guess to the allison mickel contribution yeah about the i forget what it's called specifically about the the proximity of local communities to big data it's sort of really questioning this this element of what is a satellite image to people who live at an archaeological site or people that are living day to day in archaeological landscapes because that's their lived experience. Do they do they care about these ideas of macro scale understandings of connections between sites or wide scale landscapes? Um, and do we need to try to include her question, um, which which I completely sort of agree is a question we need to be asking is, do we need to, is it even worthwhile to try to include these types of hyper-local, embedded, proximate understandings of landscape into these big data initiatives? Is that a thing we should be trying to consider or is it just too different for us to even really, to even really try and embed them? I can only imagine that trying to embed them is an extremely tricky proposition, but, um, but at least the recognition that these are both valid ways of looking at our data sets and the people that they affect at least can start a discussion, which I think is what you were trying to do. Yeah, definitely. The The intent was never to create any kind of final word on these these questions, either in the session or the supplemental that emerged from it, as much as I personally, I don't Parker can agree or disagree. He agrees. We'll see. Um, but I, I personally feel like there's a tendency in in digital technologies to sort of adopt things whole scale without necessarily always asking the same ethical questions that we've come to ask of other types of field work. And so it's a, it's assumed in field work situations that you need to have some sort of feedback or interaction or connection mm -hmm. to the local communities of the places you work. That's an ethical imperative to what you're doing. And I don't know that there's the same ethical imperative when you're just talking about mapping sites from Google Earth. And I think there should be a question asked of, if we're just mapping sites from Google Earth, what is the ethical imperative? How do we make it so we're not just surveilling people outside of their homes and judging how they're interacting with their own surroundings for our own sort of heritage or whatever purposes, um, archeological purposes? I was really struck when I took a class in graduate school with Chris Matthews, the historical archeologist, and he put up a picture of Edmund Hillary and asked the class, why archaeology matters and he gave us an answer that echoed hillary because it's there and what he meant right. is that it happens somewhere like what's powerful about archaeology is that 
you know, you, you could point to the ground and say, this is where this happened. And here is a piece of the past and we can be here together and we can, we can have a difficult conversation about it. And you're held to ethical standards that you're not when you're working at a distance. Um, so I, I mean, what Andy's talking about is when you're disembedded from that standard context in which archeology span is done, and it feels like you have the luxury of not examining ethical questions, you're, you're still in place somewhere. There is no such thing as a God's eye view. The God's eye view is a place, uh, you know, is, is produced through very specific technologies that are controlled from really specific rooms that are run by people who, who, who have guns. <laughs> um, and, um, so there's, there's this, one of the things we try to do in that, in that article is, is to draw on some feminist literature and tech, science and technology studies that sort of says, let's, let's actually try to put people back in place. That it's a challenging thing to do when you're working with, with satellite imagery. But I think we can, get, we can get part of the way there by being honest about where the data come from and in trying to explore what happens when we, when we put our interpretations out in the world, particularly without asking for, for um, localized consent. I mean, we're talking, I mean, primarily in this conversation about satellite imagery, but it wasn't even other aspects that emerge in the supplemental or that other things that we sort of unequivocally see as being good for archaeology, like open open data or the accessibility of these archaeological data sets can have the same sort of ethical implications that we don't necessarily think of when we're sort of first first sort of pushing for this type of open data. So one of the contributions by Naha Gupta um, and colleagues looks at the fact that in questions of indigenous archaeology in Canada, their case studies based, the pressure to put archaeological data in these open access databases at the provincial level or the federal level can sometimes run completely contrary to the wishes of the First Nations people whose mm -hmm. heritage it actually is, right? And so there's the tendency to sort of see open data as good, accessible, everyone can have it, everyone gets it, you know, it, everyone can use it, it's shared heritage. But even these things that seem to be unequivocally good still have these underlying ethical questions um, that need to sort of be tackled. So it's not just about the aerial photography where we're bringing this stuff up, but it's sort of a number of these different themes are cross-cutting across the supplemental um, where we need to really assess the, the greater good of these things. Yeah, there is also um, within uh, computer science, there's a whole question now of, of the ethical considerations of open source. There's been a big brouhaha around GitHub and mm -hmm. uh, and Microsoft with things that have been used, you know, open source projects that have been used by ICE and the military against the uh, the intended wishes of the original authors. So, you know, these, these kinds of unexpected consequences that we have with something that we tend to see as, you know, from our privileged position as being good, open source, open access, uh, sometimes when you scratch the surface, <laughs> have, uh, have effects on other people in ways that we didn't originally intend or ever hope for. Big time. Well, open access doesn't mean that equal access, right? So this idea that, oh, everyone can exactly. see Google Earth. Well, it doesn't mean everyone does see Google Earth, right? Or everyone uses it the same way. And so just because it, it can be downloaded doesn't I think it's sort of a cop-out. And the same thing for open access. Just because it's open access doesn't mean that it's not controlled by a very certain paradigm of data and structure and openness and a very certain value system that doesn't necessarily represent the, the indigenous value system. I thought the point made earlier about the data sets coming from a, uh, from a particular location, uh, that also rung true with me. Because 
mapping work I've done in the Middle East, you know, all started with, you know, French cadastral maps in Syria, you know, so colonial power, uh, British landscape maps uh, in the uh, in South Yemen. And so that's also another colonial power. Um, hell, even the GPS that we use is mm -hmm. uh, originally a military technology. Yeah. You know, we're all comfortable on some level uh, until I guess we start scratching the surface and wonder what uh, the ethical considerations are then of these uh, of these data sets. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, mapping for me, the French colonial North Africa, same same thing where my field work is. It's entirely a colonial exercise, the original mapping of these heritage sites. Yeah, and I think, I mean, this is something that we wrangle with. There's been a tendency, you know, to the, the, the obvious polar opposite response to techno technological utopianism uh, is to be dystopian about it and to be really highly skeptical and say, Anytime you're using these technologies in one way or another, you're reinforcing these forms of vision that have historically been really violent. But I think I mean, there's some interesting ways in which people use these forms of vision. They turn them back on the apparatuses that build them. There was this great exhibit on campus here called Drone Warriors. that was about the use of drones at uh, Standing Rock. A really fascinating mm -hmm. engagement with this question of, um, of how drones can be used by people who uh, traditionally don't have access to power. I think that, you know, clearly the kind of scholarship that we have in this issue isn't sort of the epitome of that example. We do try to get at questions about how some patterns may emerge in through the application of big data approaches that that, that push back against the uh, dominant power structures that, that enabled some of this data to be built. So I think I think, you know, we do have to be careful. Bill Rankin says this in his book, After the Map, which deals with the development of GPS in, in the last couple of chapters, he sort of says it's true that that uh, the GPS is this military technology, but that's not necessarily baked into it. And there are all sorts of ways in which GPS uh, has unex unexpected uh, impacts on people's experiences of space that don't necessarily follow from its initial applications. So uh, back to the idea of big data. Um, Parker, you're using what you're terming big data to look at uh, at colonial impacts on the uh, the indigenous population in Peru. Last year, we had an interview with uh, I believe it was Zach Bayer, who's talking about using uh, British documents in a big data sense uh, to look at uh, at the slave trade across the uh, across the Atlantic and through the Caribbean and. I'm kind of this is not really um, very well thought through question, but it's uh, how much of the big data approach do we have? Is it going to be rooted in uh, you know colonial uh, mm. exploitation and impacts on the rest of the world? Is that the way that that a lot of these big data uh, studies are going to be going in the near future? You mean? Uh, do you think that is the question that our our big data in a sense? headed towards a collision you know is this colonialism wrapped up in new clothing to some extent uh, to some extent but i also mean is the uh, most easily accessible kinds of big data uh stuff mm. that is generated from the european colonialism of the last few centuries yeah that's a great point um the example i, I drew on was a form of colonial big data that um, was collected specifically to understand how to exploit indigenous bodies for Spanish material benefit. And, uh, you know, you mentioned this in your discussion of where maps came from. They have this, you know, at least the, the sort of Western mapping tradition has 
has empire and colonialism written all over it. So I think, you know, there's a there's a question here that comes up with how we use colonial archives. Ann Stoller and uh, and Fred Cooper wrote about this back in the 1990s. How can how do you have to read sources like this critically so that what you're what you're doing is is something different than simply putting 16th century colonial knowledge in a GIS and reprojecting it or basically stringing it out of a loudspeaker. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, in our own project that, that had mostly to do with trying to combine it with things that the Spanish never thought to combine it with, namely the, the path of the Inca road system uh, and the mm-hmm. kinds of local, localized knowledge that you only really get if you do emplaced archaeology that engages with local people. So, I mean, in some ways, I think that that is, that's where we're headed. How do we use these sources critically, but also how do we combine big data, eye in the sky approaches in archaeology with on the ground, meat and potatoes, uh, dirt and trowel archaeology. Um, and sometimes that's what we see is that the the big data approaches aren't providing answers. They're, they're simply uh, enabling us to ask new questions that then require us to go back to the field to answer them. That's a, a hopeful view of it, I think. I like that. I hope. <laughs> we don't want to be entirely pessimistic, you know? <laughs> I, think, I think Andy's more of a realist than I am. Um, would you say that, Andy? I think that's probably fair, yeah. I can be jaded and real. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think with that uh, with that final hopeful note, it's, it's a good one to end on. <laughs> so thank you, Parker and Andy, for coming on the show and talking about this. And we will have links to this supplement, this issue supplement. So it's really cool because um, we've got the one link that we were sent that takes you right to um, all the papers that were associated with this. So pretty good. Plus, we'll have a few other links on there, including the episode that Parker was on last year, if you want to go check that out. So Again, thanks guys for coming on. Um, thanks for talking about big data with us. And I hope we can have the conversation at some point like we did in the beginning about digital archaeology and Parker saying kind of all archaeology is digital, digital archaeology. Seems like we're kind of getting to the point where all archaeology is big archaeology as well because we're just mm. collecting a lot more data even with smaller sites. So mm. maybe that conversation starting to merge a little bit. Great That's idea. Yeah. indeed all right guys again thanks for coming on yeah thank you so much for having us and take care be safe you too we'll do see ya you may have heard my pitch for membership it's a great idea and really helps out however you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt sticker or something from a large selection of items from our t public store head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link that's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show all right welcome back to the Archaeotech podcast episode 133 and paul that was a that was a great discussion and and, and i really liked how it was i was going to mention the thing about kind of all archaeology bringing big archaeology and they they sort of started to wrap that up for me right at the end there and i'm great that uh we kind of bookended it by saying you know all archaeology is digital archaeology but really i do really think that all archaeology is big archaeology these days just because of the sheer volume of data people are recording you know we've always kind of recorded a lot of data with archaeology but it's 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 even more so now i even think about just photographs to take a simple example you know even 15 years ago you would limit your number of photographs that you take 
take because you're using film. You know, you've got a finite resource and you, you only have so much that you can take out with you and, and development costs, you know, just add to your project costs, things like that. But man, once digital really started to hit, I mean, people are just snapping photos all over the place because what's the, what's the big deal? We have, let's take 300 photos because we can, not realizing that we're probably going to store all those in a hard drive somewhere forever. <laughs> <laughs> and where does that go? What do we do with that? You know, that's just one minor example of the, the data we're collecting. But, you know, as, as tools, especially for C- CRM archaeologists get more affordable and, and drones become more of a thing and, and other types of data collection methods become more accessible, people are going to start using them more. And, and we have to be concerned with how we're using the data and what we're doing with it. So, Well, that concern there, um, you know, you and I, for the most part, when we talk about concern, uh, we talk about practical concerns, you know, storage, sure. how things are actually manipulated and used in, you know, in our computers, in our databases, in our, uh, you know, image processing in GIS and so on. We're, we're concerned about that kind of how, but there's also the, uh, the whole concern that was definitely brought up um, in this article in this supplement rather, that's the, the concern for the ethics behind what we're doing. And, and I'd said it because I see it day in and day out on my, uh, on my Twitter feeds and on my uh, various discourse channels I'm on with different archaeologists that um, maybe it's mostly people a little younger than I am. Maybe I hope that it's including my generation, but thinking about the ethical concerns and the impacts upon descendant communities and the impacts upon people who live on the land that you're, that you're studying and various stakeholders and shareholders, th- this is all now part of the normal conversation. It's not a side fringe thing. In the same way, and this is something that Parker led off, that digital archaeology, well, basically all archaeology is digital archaeology at this point. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that is now so obvious. Um, the people outside of our field even get that, are starting to get that. And so <laughs> I, I want to actually, uh, I got a great email a couple of weeks back from one of our listeners, uh, Mark Carrera, who's not an archaeologist. Maybe he listens to this because he's like me, spent a couple decades working in uh, in K through twelve technology. Uh, he's he's a, he's an <laughs> IT guy in school, so uh, so we probably have a lot nice. of some pot to go there. But he wrote a very nice email and uh, and gave me permission to quote something that he said with regards to digital archaeology. And I think that he says it better than I could have. He says, "quote We live in a digital world inhabited by digital natives. I think that the adjective." Digital is past its prime and should be dropped. Field research is field research. Eventually, it will become digital data, all of it. Why call it digital mm. archaeology? And I think that that really cuts to the quick, cuts to the point that we, uh, we've we been thinking of for a while, that you know we are using digital tools to generate digital data, and we just, that that is, it's our data. Who cares? The digital is the, is pointless almost at this point. And as you were implying, now we have so much of it because it's so much, it's so easy and fairly inexpensive to get more and more data that soon all our digital archaeological data is going to be big data. And hopefully mm-hmm. it's all underpinned by an ethical consideration before we just go willy nilly collecting and processing and disseminating. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's the point. Uh, that's the point. I think we've been trying to make for a while now, honestly. Which is, man, why why are we having this discussion over you know terminology when it's when it's all coming down to the same thing? I do think the one caveat to all that, just because there are different considerations, are are some of the ethical considerations that were brought up in this show uh, because it's not something I really thought about. I'm 
I'm kind of a data guy when it comes down to it. And I like the science of it and looking at it. And sometimes, sometimes I don't pay attention to those bigger concerns. Um, like I think one of the things they were mentioning is, you know, uh, how does some of the people whose ancestral relationships and, and history that you're trying to analyze, how do they feel about you taking these massive data sets and generalizing across a large landform? Right. I mean, that's, that's kind of bad, you know, it's basically stereotyping. Uh, and, and if we're trying to generalize across a landform based on certain things, we might not be getting the whole picture. And we got to think, well, what question are we trying to ask? Like my, my example of, you know, the, the one flake hanging out on the landscape in Nevada, well, there's 10 million of those, right? And if we can map all those, maybe we can answer some bigger questions. But you know what? Maybe we can't because maybe all those cultures have that same practice because let's be honest, it's a flake. You retouch as you're walking along, you do different things. You're going to drop a flake here and there. Maybe the flake was transported by uh, somebody's shoe or a cow hoof or something like that. I mean, you, ha- you don't know how it got there. And you probably can't answer a big generalizing question other than the fact that were people here? Yes, no. <laughs> yes, they were because flake exists. <laughs> but other than that, you, you really can't make any cultural determinations because there were so many different cultural groups lumped into small areas. Because as we mentioned in Peru, before we even started talking, we were talking about Peru because Parker's done work down there. It's all valleys. Nevada is all valleys. You could have one Paiute cultural group in one valley and a completely different one in another valley. And they'd have you know little communication between each other um, culturally. So those are the big concerns we got to be concerned with, I think. And that's something that I haven't really thought about that much, to be honest. No, I haven't thought about that deeply, but I have thought a lot about your example of the um, of the, the density of um, sherds or whatever and the legal ramifications of mm-hmm. it. And I do think that, you know, any of us that were doing our dissertation research in the late 90s, early 2000s, one of the big questions was, how do you define a site? Um, and yeah. so people generally went with certain densities. And I'm increasingly coming to the opinion that that site is a pretty useless notion. <laughs> yeah. and what I mean by that is that in my own work, I'd come across a roadway. Well, a roadway doesn't necessarily have a particular density. It's a linear feature that is definitely man-made on landscape. Mm-hmm. Is that a site? Well, it probably should be considered a site, but then with the the, the shirt scatters and lithic scatters and such, you know, it used to be that be below a certain threshold. It was to use the same analogy that you're using with your digital photography versus film photography. Uh, it was a limited resource, you know. Now it's pretty easy to just do, put a note, GPS point, whatever you put into your uh, digital notebook, and move on and then eventually dump that all into a GIS. And so I think that's where it starts to come back around to your notion of uh, all our archaeological data, our, um, our big data potentially, is that if we make it so easy to collect these things, these data, mm-hmm. why don't we? And we probably do, uh, barring certain legal considerations. And to bring it all back around, you know, hopefully we have an ethical understanding of what and why we're doing it. Yes, we certainly can record everything, but like you were saying, it might not mean anything or it might reveal something that probably shouldn't be revealed. Mm-hmm. And no, I don't mean the mummy's curse. <laughs> wow, you went there. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's there's so much to talk about with this. Um, I would say definitely get a hold of us like, like our last email commenter did, the one that you just quoted. 
get a hold of us and and let us know what your thoughts is on this and because it'll help us uh, help us frame the conversation maybe find other guests and and see what we're going to talk about next but I, I wonder where this podcast would be in five years you know what I mean or even a couple of years for that matter what are we going to be talking about we're even talking we talk about big data a lot like big data has come up numerous times as mm-hmm. not only a side topic of a show but but as a as a primary topic of a show like this one and you know similar to digital archaeology i mean i can remember uh when you first came on the on the show paul and before that it was all talk about tablets and what kind of tablets should we use for archaeology and different programs and things like that and that's not even a question anymore no. you know and that's a real short period of time where that's not a question now crm archaeologists are still a little bit behind the curve on actually implementing some of that stuff but more and more firms are coming into the idea that they really should be recording digitally, not just because it's 2020, but because it's just more efficient that way. And you're able to do more things with the data if it's born digital versus becomes digital later on. So yeah, it's interesting uh, to think about where we're going to be in the future with all this. So any other final thoughts on big data, Paul? So let's wrap up big data forever. Yeah. We're done with it. Um, wash your hands. <laughs> Wash your hands. Yeah, that's that. I mean, that really is big data right there. Let's let's talk about the coronavirus. Yeah, oh my God. Really is. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that was great. Thanks again to Parker and Andy for coming on. We've got their uh, a bunch of links to their resources and things like that over in the show notes. Arcpodnet.com forward slash Archaeotech forward slash one thirty three. And I would say, hey, check out our show notes as well if you want to get a hold of us. All the nice contact info is in there. Again, arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeotech. And also, I want to mention on this show, we have, as long as you're listening to this in somewhat real time, because things may have changed in the future, but we've changed our whole membership system. We've taken it from a three-tier membership system down to just one tier, and it's $7.99 a month. And you get access to episodes early without the ads. You get access to our Slack team where you can talk to the hosts you can talk to other other members and a few other freebies thrown in there we're coming down the line again if you're listening to this in real time in july of 2020 we are coming around with some uh live discussions and other things that you'll get as a member for example we're going to continue running these small conferences like we did our test conference in may uh in which paul was a speaker (laughs) we have um more of those coming down the line and not that we're going to charge necessarily for attendance, but we do want to charge for the access to the recorded versions of those presentations just so we can make some money for the podcast network, keep the lights on over here, get our volunteers paid uh, and continue doing those things. But I'm saying that because members will always have free access to that stuff. Um, So if you're a member of the APN, that's a pretty sweet deal is you'll get access to those back conference catalogs that we'll end up doing later. So so head on over to arcpodnet.com forward slash members or just the Archaeology Podcast Network and you'll see links to it and check it out. So I think that's about it for big data. Hey, Paul. Yeah, yeah. This will never come up again. We've exhausted the topic. <laughs> Indeed. So with that, we'll end the show. And again, contact us if you want to. Go become a member. Um, contact us about advertising as well. Help us keep the lights on over here and support archaeological education and outreach. We'll see you next time. Bye. I mean, you have to end with wash your hands, even though you already said it. Okay, wash your hands. <laughs> <laughs>Thanks for listening to the Architect Podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com slash Archaeotech. 
Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is licensed free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.